Bills make me wanna shout. Kick your heels up Welcome back, listeners, to another exciting episode of Bills and Beers, the Buffalo Bills podcast from a bunch of people who used to watch Bills games together in Chicago, Illinois. We've had intimate sessions on this podcast before, but none, I assure you, more intimate than this. Today, it's just me. I'm Lars. It's an extra special episode of Bills and Beers. It's the final episode of Bills and Beers. Now, truth be told, I'm probably going to let the annual Podbean subscription auto-renew in perpetuity. And should the event arise such that an episode of Bills and Beers might be warranted in the future, we'll be back. We'll be up to all our old tricks, but as for following the in-season rhythm that we more or less have over the course of each of the previous 12 NFL seasons, those days are now officially behind us. More on that later. It's easy to let that number roll away. 12. For 12 years, we did this silly little show of ours, a show which began as a preseason preview show leading up to the first preseason game of the 2009 season, a home game against none other than the Chicago Bears. Historical note that was actually the second preseason game for the Bills in 2009 because prior to the one against the Bears, they played in the archaic and fundamentally stupid fifth preseason game, the Hall of Fame game in Canton, Ohio. The Bills played in that game because it was the year Ralph Wilson was inducted alongside Bud Adams, the longtime owner of the Houston-turned-Tennessee-based franchise. The Bills wore their throwbacks, the Titans dressed like the Oilers. It was rad. We'll get to more about 2009 in a second. Because on the eve of that Bears preseason game in 2009, huddled around a kitchen table at Big Blue, an apartment on Berry Street tucked cozily into Chicago's divine Central Lakeview neighborhood, the home then of Jammin' Jeff Day, four Bills fans, myself, the aforementioned Jammer, Buffalo Bill Nichols, and the lovely Miss Cassie Ozark turned Hutton, hit my laptop's record and had at it. And then 12 years and some entirely pointless symmetry came to be, and on the eve of another Bears preseason game, I sat down to jot notes on how I wanted to end this thing. But to end it properly is to do so by giving proper deference to those 12 years and what they've meant to us as Bills fans and what they've meant to us as people. So to begin to properly establish some context before saying goodbye to this podcast, I'd like to borrow from the greatest segment in the entire Bills fan podcasting universe and present to you these past 12 years in Bills history. I mean headlines. No, I mean history. These past 12 years in Bills history. 2009 was a bizarre year. It was the final year of the Dick Duran era. It was the start of the Fitzpatrick era. It was Eric Wood's rookie season. It was Aaron Maben's rookie season. It was Jairus Bird's rookie season. We've seen a lot of strange arcs following this team for as long and as closely as we have, but no arc is stranger than Jairus Bird's arc. If you would have told me he was still in the league through 2017, I would have called you a lunatic. This guy went from white hot to utter obscurity at an alarming clip. I don't even remember him being on the Bills past his rookie season, and this guy had two more Pro Bowl appearances as a Bill following his absolutely bonkers lead-leading nine interception in his rookie season in 2009. 2009 was also the T.O. year. 
I defy any Bills fan over the age of 32 to claim they don't know exactly what they were doing the moment they heard T.O. was coming to the Buffalo Bills. They gave him a key to the fucking city. He was widely believed to be the franchise savior who would prove once and for all that Trent Edwards simply lacked a supporting cast. Yeah, that turned out to not be the case. It was a dumb year that started in the dumbest way possible on Monday Night Football, the kickoff to the 50th anniversary season of something or other. It was Tom Brady's triumphant return after missing all of the previous season with a knee injury, and the Bills managed to blow a 24-13 lead with two minutes to go in the game, thanks almost entirely to Leotis McKelvin fumbling a touchdown ensuing kick return. They'd lose five of the next eight, Jerron would be fired, and Edwards would be benched, thus giving us our first little taste of Fitz magic in a game featuring one of the dumbest final scores of all time, an 18-15 loss to the Jags that did feature a 98-yard go-ahead touchdown pass from Fitz to T.O. These, of course, were the moments that kept us coming back, that gave us just a tiny little droplet of hope to swish around until reality set in again, like it did in a major way for most of the following season. In the offseason leading into the 2010 season, the Bills were determined with their new hires to adopt the defensive philosophy which had been their impenetrable nemesis, the vaunted 3-4. Ron Rivera said no thanks and went to coach the Panthers instead, so we got to ride with some guy named Chan Gailey, who had a couple of tricky ways of making an offense seem fun for about half a game, but whose biggest claim to fame as a head coach was hiring woefully incompetent men to run the defensive side of things. After only one or two weeks, Chan cut Trent Edwards and gave the keys to Fitz. A few weeks after that, they'd trade Marshawn Lynch. They had just drafted C.J. Spiller. I keep saying they, presumably they, was aging slim Pickens impersonator Buddy Nix, whose reign as Bill's GM, I guess, was interesting to say the least. He napped during free agency. His calls got recorded when he'd speak openly about the team's quarterback strategy. He was just bad at his job. I mean, the team only won four games in 2010. They lost their first eight. It truly was the low mark of an otherwise mediocre franchise. 2010 was an historically bad year. It was a low and hopeless point for the franchise. And then 2011. The Bills started the season with a 41-7 trouncing over the Kansas City Chiefs. It'd be another three years before they'd score that many points again. They did it twice last year. Then week two was a drunken shootout with the Raiders that had Fitz squealing like a little girl. And then at home against New England for the first time in 15 tries on a 28-yard field goal from Ryan Lindell with no time left on the clock, the Bills did the unimaginable. They finally took down the goddamn filthy, rotten New England Patriots. What you're about to hear is never released audio. Lincoln Station played the shout song twice. There was much screaming, much cheering. Then this happened. The Bills just beat the Patriots 34-31. What are your thoughts for Bills and Beers? <laughs> oh, is this, is this a live interview for the show? <laughs> uh, I don't want to talk right now because I'm about to start crying. 
I'm not ashamed of that clip. Yes, I've waited 10 years to release it, but that's because I was waiting for the right time, and this feels right. Until the past few years when the Bills became a fiery offensive juggernaut from hell, this game was in a class of its own in franchise moments, spanning the period of team history that more or less paralleled Bills and Beers. The enormity of this game and what it meant to the fan base at the time cannot be overstated. I don't want to talk right now because I'm about to start crying. This was another one of those moments that gave us reason to believe for just a little longer. Because I'm about to start crying. And then, of course, the wheels would come right the hell off. They'd get to 4-0, but then they'd extend Fitz, who got nearly obliterated the following game by London Fletcher Baker, the candlestick maker, in a game in Toronto. Remember that shit? When the team would give up a home game every year to play in Toronto? The rest of 2011 was more or less a haunted nosedive which continued through most of 2012, the Mario Williams year. This was a season of fits and starts, pun intended. We got to see the limitations of a team led by Fitzpatrick and CJ Spiller, Scott Chandler, and a bunch of receivers with unnoticeable names. We got to see how terrible Dave Wanstead was at coaching defense, and at long last, Chan was fired. He cried during an impromptu locker room press conference that very same day, said he'd always cheer for the Bills, but then he'd go on to coordinate the offenses of the rest of the non-Patriot teams from the AFC East. So like most of the 2012 season, whatever. But then, then buckle up Bills fans, then things got weird, and no surprise that weirdness corresponded with the ascendance of Doug Whaley, who we think, we're not sure, but we think, he hired Doug Marone. It may have been disgraced ticket salesman Russ Brandon. I'm not sure. I don't think anybody's sure. I don't think anybody cares. But these clowns would draft EJ Manuel, then hire a 12-year-old named Nate to develop him. They got great D coordinators in Mike Pettin and Jim Schwartz, but also there was something about Kyle Orton in there, and then winning a spite game in New England against Jimmy Garoppolo, but then Marone quit after the Pagulas bought the team, and that apparently was the last straw for Orton, and they were out of draft picks because they moved heaven and earth to go get Sammy Watkins, so the franchise, at the depth of its weirdness, did what a desperate team with an owner desperate to be relevant would do. They decided to get even weirder. They went out and hired Rex fucking Ryan. I was among legion of Bills fans, hopelessly invigorated by Rex Ryan's introductory press conference, during which he'd promise all sorts of treasures the Bills under his administration would never achieve. A top-flight defense, a developed quarterback, and the goddamn playoff berth that had eluded the franchise in the decade and a half following the Music City miracle. They would go on to accomplish zero of these things, and Rex and his equally fat wannabe Lothario identical twin brother, look, I'm all for whimsy, but that shit on the tandem bikes was a weird thing for an NFL head coach to do on film. In less than two years, these jerk-offs would be resigned to the darkest corners of Bill's Mafia lore. The final game of the Ryan era, less than a week after the Ryan boys were dismissed, the Bills played on New Year's Day against the New York Jets. 2010 might have been one of the worst years in the Bills' 21st century history, but January 1st, 2017 might have been the single worst day in 21st century Bills history. This game was a fitting 
bookend at the end of the Ryan era Bills v Jets arc. The first, a victory on primetime against his scorned former employer. The second, a Week 17 victory that more or less booted the surging fits and Brandon Marshall-led Jets from the postseason. How long until the fall of the franchise record set that year by Fitz and Brandon Marshall? The third, a primetime shellacking in Week 2 that sent Greg Roman packing. Then this, the fourth, Rex had already slithered away before it even got started, but nonetheless, his team made a mockering of football to ring in the 2017 year. Among many other blunders that day, the team surrendered six points on what essentially amounted to the world's longest onside kick recovery when Mike Gillisley inexplicably let a kickoff roll into the end zone for a Jets player to recover. I watched that abortion of a game at the Austin Bills Backers Bar the day after Jim and Jeff Day's wedding, and Jeff's dad, otherwise the mildest, kindest man you'd ever grace, was furious, and as a season ticket holder, had a right mind to inform the team of his displeasure. Rex Ryan inherited a fairly talented team that, granted, had no quarterback, no quarterback prospects, and no first-round draft picks. They went out and got Shady McCoy, but drafted poorly, then overperformed just enough to keep Rex Ryan relevant. Then, the moment he had to work for it, he backed his fat ass slowly into the broadcaster's chair he'll forever call home. He left the team in shambles, and for a hot second, I was out. This hardly seemed worth the effort any longer. Charles Hawtrey and the Deaf Aids. <laughs> Phase one in which Doris gets her oats. Quick divergence. Another constant in the Bills and Beers universe is my wife, Jackie. If you know anything about having two kids with a combined age of less than six, then you know what an effort this podcast has been for her, too. And of course, she has my gratitude, but it'll never be enough. Jackie's been a good soldier. She suffered right along with me. I'm her tie to Buffalo, and I'm not even from there. She didn't have to care. She didn't have to support me in this insanity, but she did. She sat next to me at the 2004 Week 17 loss to the Steelers' backups. She tolerated the need to be near a television playing the Bills game any Sunday afternoon, no matter where we were or what was going on in our lives, and she put up with the grouchiness that loomed over most of the evenings that would follow. On the morning of her birthday in 2017, she was pregnant with our first son, and we were riding the train down the Pacific coast between Los Angeles and San Diego. It had been nearly two weeks since the New Year's Day Jets debacle, and I had really taken a break from the Bills and the Pagula's Jet Tracker and from all the keyboard GMs who had their precious wish lists of future head coaches, most of which I'm confident didn't name Sean McDermott. If you've never taken that train ride from L.A. to San Diego, I highly recommend it. It's some kind of romantic Americana that doesn't feel like it actually belongs in our reality. And about three quarters of the way into it, I got an alert that the Bills press conference introducing Sean McDermott would begin shortly. These damn things were becoming a tired exercise. I had clung to every word said by Rex Ryan, and before him, Doug Marone, and before him, Chan Gailey, and before him, Dick Geron, and I was just kinda over it. 
But as the train pulled into the San Diego station, leaving a slice of heaven behind it, I tossed a bone to my curiosity and put one earbud in while we looked for taxis to take us to the hotel. Jackie understood. I was underwhelmed. I thought for sure we'd be going through this again in 24 months, 36 if we were lucky. I was scarred, uninterested, and skeptical. And honestly, I stayed that way until the 2017 season began. I want the record to show that I firmly believe the 2017 season was a fluke. The Bills got just about every break and bounce imaginable right up through and including Andy Dalton's 49-yard touchdown to Tyler Boyd on 4th and 12. The drought breaker, I'm calling it. And it's a good thing they had luck that year because given the way 2018 went, I'm not sure the McDermott era would have made it to 36 months. But it has. Something changed in 2017, changed in a big way, and the Bills have been on a steady, unbroken upward trajectory since. The decades-long calamity that preceded the marriage between Sean McDermott and Brandon Bean has evolved from tragedy to comedy, but feels so foreign to the order and legitimacy we've come to expect from our franchise. To say these two guys turned things around would be an understatement. They've so far, with three playoff appearances in four years and a trip to the conference championship, have accomplished more than any Bills fan dreamed possible. They've put our team on a pedestal we couldn't even see from the depths of our mediocrity, and that, in large part, is thanks now almost entirely to Josh Allen. The 2018 QB Rodeo was honest to God one of the most stressful and intense stretches of time I can remember as a Bills fan. The trades, the picks, the intrigue, the draft nicks, the stat dorks, the conventional wisdom, the tweets, the interviews, the film, the clips, all of it. We poured over all of it every damn day and the consensus was, and I'm not breaking news by saying this, and this is by no means controversial or even up for debate, the consensus was any of the top guys, but not Josh Allen, please. So of course, when we drafted him, Bill's Mafia rolled its collective eyes and said, well, shit, here we go again. Shame on us. Hadn't we heard? Didn't we get the memo? Things were different now. Had been for over a year by that point. The drought was over. We had a smart, decent, disciplined young men running our team, not oafish clowns, quitters, and castoffs. How dare we doubt these guys? Thank you, Josh Allen, for making fools of us all. Thank you, Josh Allen, for being not only a physical specimen, but a physical specimen who's ready to work and willing to be coached. For being a warrior, a goofball, a clutch, shit-talking hero who backs it up and lets you know about it. A guy who's won the hearts of everyone in the locker room and every man, woman, and child living in or once connected to Western New York. For bills and beers, our prize for enduring Trent Edwards, Brian Brom, Ryan Fitzpatrick, E.J. Manuel, Jeff Toole, Thad Lewis, Kyle Orton, Tyrod Taylor, Nate Peterman, Matt Barkley, and Derek Anderson is Josh Allen. This is what we waited for. This is what we suffered for. I'd like to think this podcast helped the peace of Bill's nation navigate the darkness, helped give hope when we were wandering helplessly through the wilderness, and now it brings me great joy and great pain to say, we're here. We've arrived. More on that in a moment.
As much as the franchise has transformed over the last 12 years, so too have the members of this podcast. There have been four weddings, four births, a fifth one is coming, members moving, members joining, a lot happens from your mid-20s to your late 30s. But our origin story really begins in 2005, the fall, when Jeff and I started watching games together during our senior year of college and when Cass, Suge, and Bill started watching together in Chicago before Jeff and I moved out to join them the following year. For years, before we were a podcast, we were a bunch of kids, basically, watching each and every Bills game together at the same table, at the same bar in Chicago, week in and week out, season in and season out. The team was lousy. These were some of the most infuriating days of my life, but these were also some of the best days of my life, and I wouldn't trade them or the memories of them for anything. I cherish them. Jeff left Chicago in 2013. That was the year Sujit joined the podcast. Before then, we would just kind of not talk about bills and beers around him, even though we always hung out on game day. It was weird. But he was working a ridiculous doctor schedule at the time, couldn't really ever be anywhere on time, though that hasn't changed much. Just had a kid and seemed more or less unavailable until he suddenly wasn't. And it was great. In many ways, as I'm sure Mrs. Day would agree with, he has been a uh, unique member of this pod ever since. Then in 2015, Bill left Chicago. And we came up with like a dozen different segments to keep him on the show. And somewhere, there's a clip of Cassie and I doubled over in laughter as we recorded an off-season pod from my living room. And Bill had just pitched us on his latest idea for a segment, Got Any Cheese, in which he compared aspects of the Bills to varieties of cheese. Moving to Wisconsin has really suited Bill. As far as concepts go, it was ludicrous. We incorporated fart noises into his intro, and mercifully, it didn't last long. On our first go of it, though, something hit Cass and I just right, and I genuinely thought she was going to laugh herself to the point of it, uh, <laughs> laugh herself to the point of asphyxiation. I think this was around the time we were also getting paid to do live reads for mybookie.ag until a close friend of the pod had all of his money suddenly vanish from his account. It's hard to believe the service lived up to the sketchiness of mybookie's URL, but honestly, who could be surprised by that? Sorry, Phil. When the Bills lost the crusher to the Houston Texans in the 2019 wildcard game, the podcast that followed was a drunken therapy session that dwelled mostly on the news that I, too, was about to leave Chicago. Four days later, I was gone. In less than three weeks after that wildcard loss, I was sitting in the basement of our then-Philly rental taking nightly incident calls on Asia time because a strange new coronavirus had begun disrupting our production in China. The rest is pretty self-explanatory. If you listened through last season, you know we made it work being in five different places at once. Because of the moves, because of COVID, we could no longer all be together and predictably the friendships that for so long fed on the game day experience struggled to find new, different ways to sustain themselves. The podcast had evolved from a hobby, to a project, to a ritual, to a chore. There are myriad more Bills podcasts today compared to when we started. In fact, in the years leading into Bills and Beers, there were two shows that have also since been abandoned. The Buffalo Bills Review, BBR, and Wide Right Radio. Am I the only living person with memories of these shows? 
invariably will leave a tiny hole in the Bills podcasting universe, but I doubt it stays empty very long. I do, however, vividly remember the final episode of BBR, the Buffalo Bills Review, or at least the final episode recorded by its founder, Dave, who seemed like a tremendously kind and friendly guy. I sincerely wonder what he's up to these days. But I remember him saying the words, I'm hanging up my microphone, and I've thought about that moment a lot, and I always wondered how I'd say it when the time came for me to hang up my microphone. I envied the simplicity of his statement and how he just kind of left it at that. I'm obviously not capable of that kind of brevity, so this is what I'd like to leave you with. Well, we're coming up on the end of the series, which means it's time for the closing thoughts of the series. And before we go any further, a quick production note. This song, which has been featured in every single episode of Bills and Beers, is Don't Do It by the Band. I know the litigious smarty pants over at Maybe Next Year have a much, much higher level of respect for authorized creative use than we do. So in the interest of transparency, I want to clarify that none of the media incorporated into any Bills and Beers episode, while carefully and intentionally curated most of the time, was ever, ever authorized. This is Bills and Beers. We talk about the Bills. We do so drinking beer, and this episode was produced over several nights and involves several varieties of beer, but one my wife and I have been enjoying recently is the Hazeway IPA from the Winding Path Brewery in Dallastown, PA. And now for some closing thoughts. Conventional wisdom would have you believe this moment in Bill's history is a window. The team in its current iteration has around five, but probably fewer than 10 years of greatness to enjoy. If they're going to win a Super Bowl, it's going to happen relatively soon. My sons are still a little too young to fully appreciate or even understand what's happening over the course of any given contest, but it seems reasonable to predict their fan consciousness will come online sometime during this period of Bill's greatness, much like it did for me during the 90s when I was 6, 7, 8, and 9 years old for Bill's Super Bowl losses. It is my sincere hope that they be exposed to a winning franchise during these most impressionable years, but beyond that, their experience be just as marred by suffering as mine, that beginning sometime around 2030, the Bills slip back into punchline obscurity and stay that way for another generation. In many other aspects, I hope to an unhealthy degree that my son's life experiences mirror my own. This is not one of those cases. As visceral as this desire for them to suffer may be, it's also a very conscious one. We've said for years that the struggling and the losing would make the winning that much sweeter. Right now, that's coming true in real time, but I'm suspicious of how long the sweetness lasts in its current form. I resent the possibility that the sweetness goes away altogether once it becomes customary, and I fear the only way to sustain the sweetness is by offsetting it with misery. I want the Bills to make my sons miserable because I want them to someday experience the kind of true joy that can only be born from agony. Being the underdog is part of the DNA of Bill's Mafia. Our loyalty is our badge of honor, and knowing that our loyalty has been tested and pulled to the brink, one torturous primetime loss, one first-round draft bust, one late-game collapse after another, is what gives us the strength 
when it's the week before Christmas and we've been feasibly eliminated from contention for nearly a month, but rise up anyway, stand atop the frozen stadium seats and hike up our Zubas to stare down the media darlings with immense pride in our hearts, knowing they just don't get it. That's what it means to be a Bills fan. I'm going to enjoy the hell out of this run, and I hope to God we come out of it with a Lombardi or two or three, but when it's all said and done, our rightful place is a sad one. It's somewhere near the bottom of the middle where the outsiders are right to doubt our team, but sorely mistaken for doubting us. Nothing in life worth doing is easy. Nothing easy is worth doing. Bill's fans are in it for the work. We deserve this and will be stronger than ever after it's run its course. And when greatness returns, we'll deserve it then too. It's going to be an awesome year. I hope you hear from us again. But in case you don't, go Bills. The Bills make me wanna shout.